0: Hello and welcome to episode 175 of Page One the Writer's Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Derek. And thanks for joining us on the podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, find out how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips as possible. So, uh, if this is your first episode, please do go and check out our past episodes. We've had some brilliant guests on uh, and I'm sure there'll be someone that you want to hear from, just like this week's guest.
1: Yes, indeed. This week we're chatting with the wonderful Sonia Dean. Her debut novel was The Book Eaters, which received rave reviews and was on the bestseller lists. It's always very nice to hear. And of course, she uh, is also the co-host of the publishing Rodeo uh podcast which is a a podcast which kind of dives deep into the publishing industry and dispels some of the myths about what people perhaps uh, don't know about the realities of getting your book published
0: yeah exactly so um once you've listened to our podcast every week and i stress that only (laughs) once you've done that you should go and listen to the publishing (laughs) rodeo podcast because seriously it is a really great podcast and it does really delve you know pull the curtain back i guess on yeah what really happens even after you've got a book deal and that sort of thing so yeah. um it's, it's a really informative and entertaining
1: podcast it is and it? it tackles those questions like finances you know the stuff that people are maybe all oh, those questions you wanted to mm-hmm. uh, to know but never asked were the phrases like you know finances advances the reality of p- having yeah. a career what happens a, when as you're as a right? middle list author exactly. and all that yeah, sort of stuff marketing. yeah marketing
0: So, um, yeah, it's, it's a really great chat we have. So we'll get straight into after a quick advert for our writer's notebook and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest.
1: But for now, on with the podcast.
0: The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is right. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow.
1: But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read, or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. screenplay a comic or any other kind of story we truly believe that when you use it it will help you get to the main event writing your story so we hope this helps
0: we can't wait to read what you come up with
1: and remember every story starts with page one
0: did you always want to be a writer
2: absolutely not um, i think i was probably one of those people who didn't want to be a writer I would still describe myself as a reader because I read a lot more than I write and I think I had this idea when I was about 11 or 12 that writing would be like a really cool occupation and that I was probably the only person who'd ever had this brilliant genius idea and then I think by the time I was 13 and on the fan fiction wheel of time websites and every other person wanted to be a writer I was kind of getting the idea that it yeah this is like a pipe dream and everyone wants to do it and hardly anyone makes it. I think by then Google was pretty effective and I did some quick Google searches on how to become a writer and was like, okay, this is a, not a good road.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, having had that initial desire to do it and then sort of being put off by Google, what was it that, that sort of drew you back into it? Then?
2: Um, probably at the risk of sounding cliche, not being a success in anything else, I think. If I had had any other kind of career or anything in my life that panned out the way I planned, I would not have done writing. Um, But I guess I kind of reached about 29 or 30, had a little bit of a midlife crisis that nothing was kind of going the way I'd planned in my life. And I still hadn't written that book. And I just felt like at a certain point, I wanted to like do it almost as a bucket list to say that I'd done it. I'd written a book and given it a try. So I gave myself two years, which at the time I thought two years is loads of time. You know, if you can't get a book published in two years, you're never going to, which obviously we know is ludicrous. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I gave myself two years to try and and get something published. At the end of the two years, I hadn't done it. But by then I was already invested so much time and knew more about the industry and still wanted to pursue it. So
1: and I mean, I take it during. I mean, even before this two-year period, you know, the last like fifteen years or so up to that point, I take it you'd always been thinking about writing, or it'd been present in the back of your mind—the uh, kind of nagging thought that you should give it a go. Was that always sitting with you?
2: I think, I think I always saw it as unattainable. And then, in a it, this sounds really weird, but after I had kids, so I didn't use push chairs or strollers for my kids because we we had really very little money I carried them in baby slings and I ended up going down this rabbit hole of researching baby slings and fabric and weaves and looms like did you know you can make fabric out of milk for example anyway (laughs) in four months I knew so much about that I was like I, I could have become like a almost like a sling consultant i you know i was this close to buying a loom and i think at one point i pulled back and i thought if i'd spent all this time trying to learn about writing how far would i've gotten um and it just made me reevaluate like how i was kind of spending my time and how whether or not the barriers i saw between myself and writing were were actually there were just kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy if that makes sense
0: mm-hmm. and and so with that first book uh, that you'd written um yeah you went through the querying process. Um, How many, you know, how did that go? And how many agents did you send that one out to before you thought, right, I need to move on to the next one? Uh,
2: About 130 queries for that book, which was at the time pretty much every sci-fi and fantasy agent I could find for adult fiction, really scraping the barrel and some small presses too. I think I submitted to the Angry Robot Open Door and a few other places. And it was not, yeah, no one is interested because it just wasn't – I think, weirdly, I did get one – I had Storm Constantine, if you know who she is. Mm-hmm. And she wrote back, and she did actually really like it, and she said, but I can't publish it. And she forwarded on to Ian Waitley at NewCon Press, and he said he'd take a look, and then he ghosted me, which is fine because it was a really bad book. <laughs> uh, and that's the closest I, I got to anywhere with it. Uh, and I'm glad it didn't get published because it would have – I don't write epic fantasy anymore. So – yeah.
0: I mean, you you say it's fine. Obviously, uh, you are happy in terms of 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 your career in terms of it not being picked up at that point. But ghosting is a is a real issue in the mm. industry, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And it is. um, whether it's agents, whether it's publishers, it, it it can be very frustrating, especially for those that are that don't have a foot in the door yet. Um, it can sometimes be quite a dispiriting dispiriting thing to happen to you, and it happens a lot, I think.
2: It it does. Yeah. And I remember even so, the second book I wrote, Found an Agent, we went on submission and that book died. It didn't sell. But one of the places we submitted it to was a publisher where the, the editor said she was taking it to acquisitions. And then we didn't hear from her again. And when my agent nudged, she ignored it. And not only did she ghost us, she she ghosted my agent on all my agent's other submissions. So. Oh my God. So not only did she she rejected me so hard that she rejected <laughs> all my agents. It's, it's it
1: just, your fault. It, it <laughs> just seems like such a strange response. I mean, I like I kind of get it why an agent does it to people because they're overwhelming numbers or whatever. And I don't mm-hmm. agree with it, but I understand why they why it happens. Um, I don't get it at all when it comes to publishers and agents, because surely that relationship is so important that that's the lifeblood for a publisher. Is the agents giving them work and without agents. They have nothing there and, and it's a small book world etc it seems a very strange aggressive resp- or passive aggressive response to
2: take yeah i think i've read somewhere there was a an editor i can't remember which podcast because i've listened to so many but there was an editor that talked about it and that she said it was for her it was like an anxiety response where uh so british publishers tend to feel okay with just sending one sentence rejections apparently but like U- u.s publishers want to give like a reason and then they, if they don't have the time or mental energy to write a page, they keep putting off, putting off, putting off. And then it's been months, and then they just feel embarrassed, so they just mm-hmm. go, they ghost completely. But to me, that's not really a satisfactory answer if that is what's no, happening. No. Um, no, Learn to send one sentence responses. Would be my comeback back there.
0: It's better for some sort of closure is yeah, better to know exactly. one way or the other than yeah. just, always. It's not for me.
2: Didn't make it to acquisitions. Didn't have the team support. I'm sorry. That's it. Yeah, Fine. exactly. Well, well. Yeah. Live
1: chat about your as you said your second book was the one yeah. that went out on submission um and, and 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 before we chat about that process what was the difference you think between your first and second book because you as you said you submitted to 160 agents your book one yeah. and like i read on your website book two was like you got an agent in 12 days yeah book two which is just i mean insane i mean talk about opposites between yeah. submissions yeah what was the difference between those two books
2: um the <sighs> Man, I feel bad saying this, this will sound horrible, but basically the the first book I wrote, like there were things I liked about it, but by the time I finished the querying process, I'd come to the understanding that it wasn't commercial and that I was trying to learn what commercial was. And I felt very mercenary about it, but I feel like the first book you have to get published is often your most commercial. And then you can start being weird, kind of like Jeff Vandermeer, you know, the later he gets into his career, the stranger his books become (laughs) in a wonderful way. And I kind of set out to try and learn what a commercial book was. So I did try and write one and it didn't really turn out the way I was expecting, but, you know, I made some decisions I thought would help with that because I know that my books can go a little strange. Like I wrote in first person to try and be in deeper point of view, you know, throwing out Omni and um, having a contemporary setting so I could do less world building, focus on the characters and things like that. And I think that did help. And it, it, because you know the first book I tried to write it was secondary world at five points of view it had like four storylines it was way too much for a first book and I needed something there were too many areas to work on so yeah the, the second one I did have a better sense of like not writing to market but beginning to understand what I guess a commercial book looked like and just trying to learn that and it did kind of work and that it had agent interest but only one offer in the end
0: Did did, did the first book get many full requests
2: and none had no 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 requests at all
0: yeah because i suppose that's the thing is that um you know thinking about whether it needs to be commercial and all of this sort of stuff but you do only have that that small amount of of pages to to catch an agent's attention So, so those have to be in some way as you say perhaps more of a hook than your second third fourth published book necessarily yeah. need to be um because it needs to catch the agent's attention from the get-go i guess
2: yeah and it's a weird one because i think actually because agents read so much more than editors i think they do tend to gravitate towards the faster paced books just because that's what stands out to them um my limited experience as editors is they're a little more patient because they read a lot but not as many as agents like they're reading maybe 300 manuscripts a year compared to three to six thousand that they're looking at for pitches so uh, you know there, sometimes you will go on sub once you have an agent you can go on sub with a book that you'd never have queried because because people will give you more time like they'll give you more consideration because you've already got an agent they'll assume it's been kind of vetted and stuff mm-hmm. um so i do think that that first hurdle it is a lot to clear and it does really help <laughs> but it's very hard hard to get through that door
0: yeah, yeah. and I,
1: and what was i remember? no
0: i was just going to say and obviously it with with the th- i think it was the third novel that you would written the book eaters yeah. um success so so <laughs> you you sort of made this steady progression of no no requests, uh, <laughs> then yeah. representation but not getting there and then the book eaters obviously does get picked up um and in terms of before we before we discuss that book um in terms of the process did you get a sense early on that there was going to be more success with with the queries for that one?
2: I felt like it would either do really well or completely not sell at all. And that the line between those two states was very hard to to be sure of. I feel like there's like the line between doing well and not selling is actually really thin. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's sometimes the slightest bit of difference between this is too weird to sell and this is mm-hmm. interesting and different, if that makes sense. And I think you could look at some books like Neil Gaiman or whatever and, and look at his novels and go, oh, you know, if there are a few things in this that were different, it wouldn't be as good. And it's, I guess he makes all those kinds of right choices with the help of his editors. I don't know if that makes sense as a concept. But, yeah, I, th- I felt like if I could nail it right, it would do okay. Um, I did make some choices that were maybe less wise. My agent did say at the time, you know, part of why Anchor didn't sell is we were getting lots of, oh, we don't, urban fantasy's dead, urban fantasy's dead. You cancel urban fantasy kind of rejections from editors. And that if I wrote another contemporary fantasy, it would be another difficult sell. And I felt like that wasn't correct. I know, <laughs> I I feel like things go in cycles, yes, but that contemporary fantasy, like Neil Gaiman, Claire North stuff is, it always comes back around eventually. Um, And I felt like if I could do it well enough, it would be okay. So, I think that's where you have to make, you know, those choices between, yeah, you want something to be commercial, but you also have to write something you enjoy.
0: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely.
2: And
1: I mean, that's certainly something we've heard from people, from publishers and stuff that we've had on the podcast, which is about kind of authors should have in their mind where it might sit in a shelf or something, Mm. you know, when they're writing, like how how would this be marketed what, what genre would it fall in what what's this kind of tagline perhaps or because or, or, the easier a seller is, I guess for a publishers point of view the easier the more chances is of getting picked yeah. up by them and is that something which you would recommend authors should have it shouldn't be the be-all end-all shouldn't chase trends etc but have an, uh, an idea of the wider market and where your book might sit on that shelf
2: I think it helps yeah and I think as well so someone once long ago gave me this advice that you should write what's in your heart, but with your practical hat on. And I think for mm-hmm. me, that's a good medium. Uh, and for book eaters, I felt like I had this theory that structure is what makes a book commercial and that you can have whatever concepts you like. and can be conceptually weird as long as the structure kind of it, it is accessible to readers. And that was essentially what I was trying to <laughs> see if I could do with book eaters is have weird ideas, but a thriller structure. And I think it worked. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think kind of. I think it does. Um, and how how quickly did it, or, or you know, what was the process from your editors, uh, your agent submitting it to it getting picked up and published? How did that go?
2: Um, well, I'll explain the anchor one for a basis of comparison. So, anchor, we first went out on sub and started getting rejections about the two or three month mark, which is about how long it usually takes for people to read and come back to you. Um, And I think the rest of the rejections trickled in between six months and 18 months. So it took about 18 months for us to declare the book really dead on sub. But I think by nine months, I was kind of feeling like this book's not going to happen. For book eaters, I was expecting a similar timeframe. I think before COVID, I would have said like six to 12 months on submission for adult sci-fi and fantasy. Um, And I was sort of settling in for the long wait and my agent submitted on the Monday and Friday morning, we had an offer of preempt. Wow. Yeah, that's from, uh, which I was not expecting. So that was completely insane. And that's not the shortest story I've heard, but it is one of the shorter ones.
0: <laughs> and is there, is there any, in your head, is there any rhyme or reason why, why that one happened so quickly when the other one of died on submission
2: um partly it was timing i think covid had just hit and it was right covid made things slower overall but in the initial days like everything ground to a halt and i think at the time we submitted my editor was basically at home with nothing to read because all her editor her alters were delayed and stuff and then this manuscript arrived from an agent she liked and she was already keen on the idea and she'd already seen the soft pitch on Twitter. So she read it very quickly and was able to get friends and family who weren't working from COVID to read it very quickly and same for the team. So it just kind of did the rounds really fast. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think my agent was confident in the way she pitched it when we went out and stuff like that. So just luck is always a a factor for timing. Definitely.
1: and what impact did that success have on your, on your writing? You know, how did that feedback in terms of, I guess, the more knowledge you have of how the process works, does that make a difference in terms of the type of book you write, you know, and knowing what gets picked up? does that, did you feel that you were writing in a different way, knowing what you knew afterwards?
2: Yeah, you do. I think especially because my contract was for three standalones, which is a whole thing in itself, um and that means that publishers are looking for more of the same but not too similar but not too different Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that's a hard line to walk and there were a lot of conversations my editor following that year over the next book about what makes a book more or less genre and I think you know Tor was looking for something that could be cross-genre again because mainstream is where all the, the big readers are and some of the conversations I liked less than others. I mean, one of the things Tor said early on is, Oh, you've written a fantasy book for people who hate fantasy. And I have to say that that kind of stung a bit because I want to write fantasy for people who like fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I understood what they meant that the kind of person who goes, Oh, I wouldn't read Dragons, the uh, yeah, yeah and they'll pick yeah. up like Emily St. John Mandel, even though mm-hmm. they'd hate sci fi. And you're kind of like, mm, <laughs> That's a sci fi book, but yeah, so it. <sighs> That, that's the kind of thing they were looking for. And we had long discussions about how the more world building you have in a novel, the more you shut out mainstream readers and where that line is and where you draw it and how you still express the story you want within with those considerations. So it, it does have an impact and it's why I'm glad my first book wasn't picked up because I think if you get picked up when you're very young and you don't learn to find your own voice before you have corporate voices standing at your shoulder, it's probably very tough to do that second book.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and for those listeners that, that haven't read The Book Eaters, do you want to just tell us briefly what it's about?
2: I always really struggle with this. I used to say it was about two women traveling slowly on a train to Scotland. My editor said that's a bad pitch. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it's kind of like a weird story in two parts. On, on the one hand, it is a story about society, people who eat books, and it's, it's it has this kind of theme about how what we eat affects us because everything they eat they remember and they're impacted by psychologically. But on the other side, it the it's a story about Devin and her son, and her son is a little different. He eats minds, not books. And every person he eats, he absorbs their personality and memories. So when Devin is trying to keep him alive, she has to find good people for him to eat so he doesn't become a bad person. Meanwhile, she's kind of on the run from her family and there's lots of things going on. So it, it sounds completely nuts. Um, which is why I think actually all the the back of book blurbs stray away from talking about the plot <laughs> because It might actually put people off, um, and it 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 made sense when I was very very tired and writing it very tired <laughs> and burnt out, and then I had to edit it into shape later. So,
1: <laughs> well, 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 let's let's chat a little bit about that kind of process okay. you know what what is your process do you do you plan a lot of stuff out? do you pants it do you sit down and have like a routine like a nine to five what's your what's your process
2: uh i never have had routines or written every day because that was impossible around special needs kids um i know that's the advice is to write every day but i think that comes from a place of telling people just to basically form it as a habit and i don't have a problem finishing books so so for me, that was just pressure on myself to write every day because some days you're just really tired. You need to go to bed. <laughs> um, process, I don't talk about much because I always sound insane when I do. So you can you can cut this bit if it sounds crazy. But... <laughs> no, sorry, it, it does sound nuts. And I've only ever explained it to Scott Aressa and it's why I don't talk about craft a lot because I don't understand my process very well. Um, when I was in the process of Getting a diagnosis for autism, one of the things that made me realize I need to look into it is I read an article from a woman who talked about how autistic people often experience something called a head controller, which is like a part of themselves that's always cold, disconnected, and watching. Like if you imagine your body's a mech and there's like a little man inside <laughs> who is watching everything and observing everything and very detached. And that really shocked me because I didn't realize other people experience that head controller thing until I read that article. Uh, And in in relation to writing, writing for me feels like a co-writing, a collaborative process between me and head controller where like if I'm stuck in a problem, I will basically like do the mental equivalent of passing head controller. no, it's like, I need you to solve this and go to bed. And then I wake up in the morning and oftentimes like there'll be a, you know, a complete idea ready that that's there. And basically, I don't understand. I know that sounds mad. I don't understand my process very well. Um, But yeah, I, I, I don't know, I sometimes plan, I sometimes pants. Every book is different. Book Eater required a lot of plotting, a lot of, I guess because it had a lot of timing things going on, you know, day by day, hour by hour, two timelines converging. Anchor was completely, that was the one before, it was completely pants. This one has been a mix, the one I'm doing at the moment. It's whatever, it changes book by book.
0: <laughs> and 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 in terms of your uh, writing or your drafting, rather, mm. do you come out with a fairly clean first draft or is there a lot of rewriting uh, before you're submitting it to people?
1: Uh,
2: I'm a bit, I think, infamous among my friends for rewriting. Um, everything changes plots, characters, timeline settings wild sweeping changes draft to draft definitely not a clean drafter I don't know if you've talked to Richard Swan but he's very much he sits at the start and he gets to the end and his book is done and (laughs) can't do that
1: how do you know when you're done then you know if your changes are so sweeping and stuff how do you know when you think ah okay no more changes needed is it just is a case of running out of time or do you know when it's ready
2: Uh, I'm usually chasing an, an emotional state that I want to describe and the story for me is just the vehicle for that so I will change anything in the world, like move from post-apocalyptic to fantasy, like male, main character to female, whatever, kind of move time zone or whatever, just to get that emotional arc, right? Uh, I guess for me, I, the story is about communication almost. I don't know if I'm explaining that well.
0: Yeah, no, that that, that makes sense. And in terms of, you know, you, you said what you said about a routine and things like that, has that been more difficult then since you've got, Uh, the contract where you're you know you now have a a timeline i guess or a Mm -hmm. deadline when you have to submit books whereas before you obviously didn't have that has that been has that been helpful or not helpful at all in having that deadline
2: um so i think this is publisher by publisher some publishers i don't know if i can say which ones well I, i guess i will but like so Orbit has more strict deadlines, I've been told, by Orbit authors. And they're they're a bit more like they really want you to meet them. Tor is very, very flexible. They're not bothered. You hand in the book and you hand it in. Uh, the deadline, mainly, that I feel is the pressure to earn more money. So obviously, the faster I write, the sooner I'll get the next check. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I do feel that, yeah. But then this book has just taken forever and it, just, it is what it is. And
1: um, your website, I have to say, is... is really fantastic and it's got loads of really useful advice i think for writers out there um including what i found the most interesting was just you kind of chart your own journey to publication you know what you what you found and uh the what you had to, to, to overcome and and i wondered is it important to you that, to dispel um some of the myths around publishing and to, to help others and to you know because a lot, a lot of it is mm-hmm. so unknown when you're starting out
2: I think I think it is helpful because when I was querying, I kept finding podcasts or articles or just stories where people would be like, uh, I don't know if you've ever read Bernard Cornwell's story about how he got agented.
0: No, um, I haven't
2: seen that one. It was in The Guardian. And basically he went to a party in New York while very drunk and he begged an agent repeatedly <laughs> to take his manuscript. And after the seventh time when he got on his knees, the agent was like, oh my God, I will read it. Just you leave <laughs> me alone. And then two weeks later, they sold it for a shitload of money and he was really so that's, famous. That, that's the key. And I was okay. like, oh my... But you read stories like that and that's not helpful. Or, you know, J.K. Rowling and her one agent rejection, which is like, I can't, I can't even... And yeah, I think there's just... There are a lot of stories where it makes it sound like you either need connections or to win a lottery. And I think that's not really reflective. There are loads of people out there that do the query grind and do the submission grind and eventually get there and... Mm-hmm. I think the culture around talking about it is changing and there's a lot more people discussing their journeys more openly.
0: Yeah. And obviously you have, have in fact, started uh, your own <laughs> podcast publishing rodeo, which has been yeah. a big, a big hit, I think in term in, in the publishing, well, certainly for writers in the publishing industry. I mean, was that on the basis of the same, same sort of thing that you wanted people to hear you know, the ups and downs of the publishing industry, even as a published writer as well.
2: I I think so, because there was one point I think in twenty twenty one I was listening to hundreds of hours of podcasts and I was struggling to find people talk about the business side a lot. And if they did talk about it, it was kind of um I guess glossed over a little bit, which makes sense. People don't want to talk about the, the difficult sides of it, but It was driving me mad that we weren't having these conversations public. And I think, I know you guys are in a Discord as well. So my Discord group, you know, a lot of what we have on pub Rodeo is the conversations we were having in private. And Scott and I just started having them publicly, basically, and just having, you know, this open discussion and comparison between me and him and having the same genre and publisher and all that, but very different debut experiences. Uh, I think if we'd known that our editors were going to listen to it, we would not have been (laughs) so gung-ho about it, but that's water under the bridge.
0: (laughs) Well, I I was going to say, you know, it has been certainly in the writer circles that that we are in, which, you know, I'm not sure how big that is, but it's certainly made a big impact. And I wondered on the wider publishing industry, has has it made an impact? Have you had feedback from the publishing side of the industry?
2: My editor said, we're not mad at you. Sounds i was like <laughs> so okay they didn't mention nice. scott um i think they were a little cranky at scott but he'll probably be okay i mean his attitude is they don't pay me enough to care so you know
1: <laughs> yeah i mean um, i think there is something especially in britain i think about um talking about money and yeah. income and i, I remember um it was it was a Twitter thread and it wasn't even that long ago. It was like a couple, of, a year or two max, I think. And people were talking about what publishing paid me. Pu- what publishing paid, mm, yeah. It was yeah, like yeah. what advances they got and stuff. And it was the first time I'd actually seen that conversation in the open, and um, which is crazy when you think about it because it's yeah. just it's such an important part of of the job, um, and yet no one really talks about it, or they're scared to talk about it, or it's embarrassing, mm. or. And, and, but it was such a nice thing because it suddenly leveled everything you kind of realized actually there's loads of folk who are getting barely anything or or some random folk who get loads and there wasn't any it was difficult to see rhyme or reason sometimes and it was just it really mm-hmm. kick this whole debate i think which has just been a really good thing in the large scheme of things talking about it more is only a good thing
2: yeah i think not talking about it benefits publishers rather than us and yeah. i think it is helpful and, and useful to, to discuss it because You know, (laughs) it's crazy that people don't know what they can make. And I think that there's tons of things where it's, I think people do have the assumption that there's progression in publishing, that, you know, you can start out like in any job entry level and work your way up. And that doesn't tend to happen. And, you know, often the way you start is the way you'll continue. And often your second book deal is less than your first, which is is something that shocks a lot of people. But that's more commonly the case. If you get a book deal that's the same size as your previous one, that's rare. Mm Uh, which is a little depressing and technically that means it's less because inflation but anyway um.
0: <laughs> and and uh, you know it's just one of the many issues that I suppose that that the that, that people don't talk about apart mm-hmm. from on things like your podcast and a bit on ours as well you know decisions that writers have to make about their careers because it is a career or if you, you know not everyone wants to make it their career but a lot of writers want to make it their career and there are difficult decisions that will come up things like you know um if you've got an agent a lot of people think oh I've got my agent great next step publish next step you know and they think yeah. it is like you said this sort of train line that they've they've stepped onto the train mm-hmm. and they'll slowly start speeding up but sometimes they'll have to change that agent because the agent's not very good yeah. or and things like that so you know is this it certainly feels to to mm-hmm. us, I think, that it's good to have this sort of open discussion about these things and open people's eyes to it, because I think for a long time, the publishing industry has been very opaque, mm-hmm. and um, there's a lot of gatekeepers in the industry as well mm-hmm. that sort of, if you're new and trying to break in, it can be very difficult to know what's going to happen or what to do.
2: Yeah, it absolutely can. I think one person I found was a, a light for me early on was Cameron Hurley, who she was one of the first people I was reading who's really, really open about her publishing journey and how little money she made or didn't make. Um, and she even posts like yearly summaries of her salary on her blog every year. And I think Michael Mamay does that as well. They they both post how much money they're making in publishing. And I think in Cameron Hurley's case, the majority of her income actually comes from Patreon, <laughs> uh, which is life on the midlist. You know, you you do need kind of multiple streams of money, not always directly from your books. Yeah. Um, and and even at my end, like it took me ages to get sales data and and to to figure out how I was doing, how my books had done. You'd it, you'd be surprised at how little editors know. <laughs> well, they don't I necessarily mean, know.
1: I mean, that's that's a good question because a good point because it's not just. Um... You don't you, you you don't know much as you go in, but even once you're in, you don't know much. Sometimes yeah. because you get told like what twice a year by a lot a lot, a lot of publishers what your sales have mm-hmm. been, and uh, you know. And I've read so many stories about folk who have had books out for two three months, and people are saying oh, how's the book going, and they're like, eh, I don't know. Like I don't know what the sales are yet. Like it's which yeah. I find just insane. It's really crazy.
2: Yeah, the best you can do is kind of look at Goodreads and maybe get a vague idea, but even that's not very useful. Um, that's very limited. You know, if you write kid-lit book, Goodreads is useless. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah it, it's scary. Like, you, you spend those few months waiting to find out how you've done and it's, you know, you've no idea really for, for
1: absolutely ages. Yeah, I suppose unless you're on, like, the Sunday Times top 10 or whatever, you know, unless you've done amazingly well, you probably don't know. You could
2: be... Even then, you'd be amazed how many books hit Sunday Times and then sell, like, pants afterwards because... Oh, really? I think the Sunday Times can be orchestrated, Yeah um there there were there have been a couple of fantasy debuts in recent years that hit sunday times and i know that their sales otherwise have bombed uh, particularly in other countries so it really
1: so why is that then why i mean i would have thought that would be a real good shot in the arm for it but is it because does it, does it, does it once it drops off that top 10 is it is it hard to get visibility
2: wait i mean firstly it depends what time of year you hit sunday time so if if i debuted a week earlier i would have been number one instead of number two if i debuted two weeks later i wouldn't have been on the list at all okay Uh, because the the two weeks later was when you get all the people like stephen king richard osmond and like richard osmond in september you know his book 127 thousand copies in the first week right like the lowest person on that list only sold 20k (laughs) (laughs) um then there's weeks where you only need like 1200 sales to scrape on. So it really varies and it, it shows initial bookseller support, but if readers aren't picking it up or if you don't get great support or if just other things don't work out, there's so many variables, so many tiny things in the States. Like if a book gets picked for, you know, being in pick of the month that elevates it. If it doesn't, you might lose out. There's so many little points where a couple of decisions can go one way or the other and have a massive impact.
0: Yeah, and, and even things like, you know, books are only... They they can be fancy and new and everyone can be buzzing mm. about them, but within a space of about literally six weeks, sometimes they won't be in the bookshops anymore because they're not the new book and mm. the bookshop just doesn't have space for them, so they're gone And because there's new books coming out, um, which seems ridiculous, but, it, you know, it it is just a case that there are, there are so many hurdles for writers these days. And it's funny because there is still this attitude if you speak to someone that doesn't know about the industry that oh if you're a writer then you must be you must yeah. be making lots of money Stephen King makes
1: millions so yeah exactly
2: yeah yeah my jiu instructor asked me how much authors make and I told him the average professional author in this country makes seven grand a year and he said do you mean 70 I said no <laughs> you well, we wish it was 70 <laughs> oh. well um I mean
1: speaking of more books sea sisters is your second book am i right and you've put out a Uh, couple of shorter stories is that right in between yeah i I
2: used to write short fiction just because it it kept something on the submission cycle and now i submit to tor.com because i got tired of being rejected and (laughs) (laughs) i don't write very many short stories like maybe one every year or so so that's about right for them um sea sisters just because i had to name the file something i don't actually know what the book will be titled when it comes out but it's yeah. It's a very different book. It's It was basically after I signed the contract, my my editor said she challenged me to think of something completely new and different and just to see what I could come up with. And, and this book was a result of that. So it's like a historical fantasy set in World War II Hong Kong, kind of between the walled city and the outlying islands, which people don't necessarily know a lot about because they're very rural. And it's kind of a ghost story, I guess, a little bit Chinese Gothic.
0: And is that is that due out next year then
2: probably not because i've taken so long to write it that i'd have to be doing the final hand in now if it were going to come out in <laughs> 2024 my guess is it'll be 2025 in spring just okay. just my suspicion but yeah
1: cool. how are you it. finding the writing process do you find it is easier with each book or do you hit the same kind of hurdles the same wall the same self-doubt etc uh,
2: i think gene Wolfe used to have this great saying about the only thing that Writing a book teaches you to do is how to write the book you've just written, and that's yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's my experience. True, yeah. <laughs> um, because it's they're so different every time, and yeah, the the, the experience of trying to write this one was atrocious. It's just the, I couldn't write until debut season was over, and you know there was loads of you feel the pressure for it. Hmm. You're being asked to write a bestseller when you don't know if your first book is a bestseller or not yet. If mm. you see what
0: I <laughs> mean, yeah.
2: Just like the worst. Sorry, that sounds horrible, but that is kind of what it feels like. Um, and and
0: uh, uh, you know, you said it was a three-book deal. I think that you mm-hmm. got initially. And um, have you even thought about book three yet? Do you have ideas, or do you wait until you this one's completely out of the way before you you start thinking about it? I that? do.
2: But I, I need, yeah, I do have ideas. I don't know yet what my editors will think of it because they are kind of the final arbiters on it. So we'll see what they think of it. Uh, I do actually have, weirdly, book three is mostly written.
0: Okay, cool. It right, would okay. need
2: to be revised. But yeah, for various reasons, it's not coming before this other one. What, um, what,
1: where do you get your ideas from? Is it is it, you know, a cliche question, but is it a case of looking at newspaper headlines or, or do you just kind of, do things pop in there?
2: Just all, I think, yeah, all over the place. Um, I think for like for book eaters that the very initial spark was someone on Twitter saying that vampires had had their day and there was absolutely no way to do them in a way that's fresh or interesting. And I thought oh, that's rubbish. Um, and then I started thinking about ways you could do them and what interested me about them. I think for Sea Sister, that was almost just drafting idea after idea after idea and mixing things together. That's, which is not how I would normally do it. And I think for the, the next one, it was inspired by, almost by music, certain emotions that you think about or certain concepts that just kind of develop. I don't know.
0: What was the last book that you read?
2: Well, I'm currently reading this one now, which is an ARC. It's called the Book of Doors, oh, and I've yes, seen that, that is a I've, hardback yeah, arc that blew oh, my wow. mind.
1: I've not seen the hardback arc. I've seen that book with doing the Runs on Twitter, yeah. though. Yeah.
2: yeah,
0: looks very nice. Yeah, this is an audio podcast, so people can't see it, but it looks okay. very it's nice. be yeah. us going. So,
2: wow, look at that book! Yeah. It's, it's an yeah for people who can't see it. Be obviously you guys can, but it's it's an arc which is in hardback with gold paint and it's embossed which i've never seen before i can yeah. only assume this book sold for seven figures you got that kind of art yeah, <laughs> well just art. saying it's quite good so far i do like it um and i just it's, it has a sort of matt haig kind of feel to it i feel oh, like cool. if if that's uh, useful
0: do, do uh, you uh, I, I, when you get sent or you know once you're published you get sent lots of arcs mm-hmm. and things do you feel under pressure to read all of these and and give quotes and things like that how is that a pressure in itself
2: i think i did initially i think it was just like the first few times people asking you to blurb it feels really cool like you're like you become a cool person now um and then you start getting requests for stuff that's just like there, there have been some I turned down i think like i'm not really i don't really like romance or steamy books there's nothing wrong with them i'm just i'm probably what people would call arrow in today's language so when you know harper sent some of those and i said i i just I would skip all the romance in this book, which is like 80% of it. So <laughs> not for me, thanks. You know, it and it would feel disingenuous to, to blurb it. So yeah, I, I do turn stuff down and sometimes it's time. I think there is there was one editor who sent me a book and was like, Could you read this and blurb it in a week? And I was like, No. <laughs> and and then, you know, so things like that, I guess. Um but you, you get, I think they get a better sense. It's like agents. They start to, editors start to get a sense of what you like and they try and send yeah. you things they hope you like. So,
1: um, What about the last film that you watched?
2: Uh, oh, film. I think the last film I watched at the cinemas was the D&D film, which really was quite good. And I thought yeah, it would be it really bad <laughs> uh, because the first one was unspeakable. Yeah, um, the
0: the first one was awful, but no, I, yeah. I enjoyed it. The it
2: one, y- the
1: years ago one, like, you yeah, were Jeremy Irons. Jeremy Irons, yeah, yeah that's yeah. Right. I, I never saw yeah. it, but I remember thinking it looked dreadful.
2: It was, it was very stupid, but it worked, and it was really funny at the right moments and things like I thought the Tiefling would be annoying because they usually are, and she wasn't, and I forgave the frigid wife trope because they used it well, and the the bit in the graveyard really did remind me of like when you're playing D anD. D yeah. and you just keep rolling like ass <laughs> and the dm keeps punishing you for it <laughs> yeah because, no, it was... so it's just lots of things yeah how they presented the magic uh the, the really fat dragon i loved i love fat dragons they're adorable so <laughs> um i haven't in, seen it yet, but this, this yeah. does
1: sound good to so i think i'll have to watch it. It,
2: it i think it's a lot of fun and yeah tv wise probably severance this year was was a good one, Severance and For All Mankind.
1: <laughs> yeah, those are two, uh, uh, one of my two favourite shows as well, I have to say. Those that,
2: are yeah, that's got to be one of the slowest burn shows on TV at the moment, All Mankind, but in a good way.
1: Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. And it was one of the shows that I remember, it kind of started off and I was like, I don't know where they take it from here, though. what's the mileage? And then, they just continually prove me wrong by being like, okay, actually, there's actually loads, yeah, so you can
2: see. And they allow it to develop very, very yeah. slowly and that there's callbacks. So you do feel like you know these people in their lives and it's good. I mean, you don't see a lot of shows on that time scale, So yeah. I appreciated the the slower pace.
1: Yeah, it makes me really wish we were actually on Mars, mm. etc. But, anyway. but well, <laughs> the, um, the very, very final thing we do is a uh, super quick fire either or. And I will say there's okay. no... There's no right answer here, apart from perhaps one of them. But we'll start off with uh, TV or cinema.
2: Oh, uh, I would have said cinema at one point, but probably TV now.
0: Uh, Night (laughs) night Owl or Early Bird?
2: Both. I don't sleep a great deal.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Um, Music or no music when you're writing?
2: No music. Yeah
0: um a fancy restaurant
2: or a takeaway uh that oh that depends how tired i am i think <laughs> i i do love nice restaurants but sometimes takeaway is exactly what you want so yeah. <laughs> i don't know if you,
1: if you combine it with the from mankind it's a it's a recipe, takeaway uh, take in tv yeah. yeah um and the very last one uh real book or e-book
2: Oh, these days probably real books because if it's on my ebook, it's easy to forget about it and I'm and just not read it. And if it's on a pile by my bed, I feel really guilty. So I read <laughs> yeah. <it. Fair>
0: <laughs> they need to start sending arcs out as ebooks as well, or did it, rather than the physical copies, perhaps.
2: Yeah, well they do do them, and I've I, I used to always take arcs as ebooks because I thought it's more environmentally friendly, but but publishers format their e so badly that it's honestly a chore to read them
1: and um, also you, you don't get the massive yeah. hardback tome yeah the goal like yeah
2: so. well this one because it's coming from the uk i thought well the postage isn't too bad i feel terrible when they send it from like new york or something but from here it's like it's only from london it's all right the planet will cope and it's a nice book honestly yes, <laughs> yes. <I think. laughs>
0: thanks very much to Sonia for coming on. I thought that was a really interesting chat there. And, you know, the model for any writer in terms of, like, persistence and showing Mm. what you have to be willing to go through in terms of rejections and stuff like that to then hopefully land a successful deal. You know, I think she said 130 queries for that first book before she gave up and then the second book picked up very quickly by an agent, but even that then failed on submission as well so yeah um it is just i mean we've talked about this before a lot on the podcast but you know rejection as painful as it can be is sadly just a part of this industry you know and you kind of just have to have to find a way to deal with that i guess
1: yeah i genuinely think that um that a lot of the authors who don't get out they get their books out there are the ones that just stop trying, you know, yeah. to get out. I think if you are persistent enough and you get it in front of enough people and you keep writing books as long you as you will you're not absolutely terrible or something. As long as you're... <laughs> and <laughs> you are uh, half good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you will you know you will get better with every book you write. Yes, you will that's true. get in front of more and more people. You'll be able to go back to those people again with a different book, with an improved book. Um, and it's all just that timing, you know, the more you submit, the more chance you have of getting that right place, right time. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, it's a numbers game and it's, I mean, as she's, as Sunya's told us, it's, yeah, persistence is the, is the name of the game.
0: Definitely. And also what was really interesting was, you know, talking about the idea that, you know, in many other, other industries, um, there's this idea of progression that you might start at a lower level, you might not get as, Paid as well, but you know, if you stick it out, if you work hard, then you'll slowly progress up that ladder. But clearly, for in terms of publishing, that isn't always the case. Sadly, you know, you you could get a very small deal to begin with, and then that can set the pattern for the rest of the deals that you're going to get in terms of in the future. Or alternatively, you could get a very big deal at first, but your book doesn't sell well, and then suddenly you're not getting any deals, or you're getting very low deals. So. It's, it's a very fickle industry, but yeah, as as we said at the start, if you want to hear more about that, then uh, we would recommend listening to the Publishing Rodeo podcast as well. But After. Yes. Make it a double bill with the page podcast every exactly. week. I think that's what you need to do. Um, but yeah, thanks for new, uh, coming on to the podcast. We look forward to the new book, whether it's called Sea Sister or something else, when it comes out, hopefully I think she thought early 2025. So, yeah, we look forward to that one when it comes out. But next week, we've got another great guest.
1: Next week, we are chatting with the amazing R.J. Barker. Yeah. Uh, critically acclaimed and award-winning author of fantasy fiction, including the Wounded Kingdom trilogy and the award-winning Tide Child trilogy, whose new book is The Gods of the Weird Wood.
0: Yeah, and we we this is an episode that we recorded in front of a live studio audience as they say on American sitcoms Uh, yeah um, at Chimera back in July Uh, it was a really fun chat with RJ and because it's it was a live one, uh, a bit of a different energy. RG's a lot of fun to chat with. Um, yeah, he's great. Um, and some audience questions as well. Yeah, sure. exactly. Yeah. So long as they recorded and have not actually listened to the recording, <laughs> but. There may not be any questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's a fun episode. So please do tune in for that one. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please do take the time to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favourite podcast app is, as that helps us to continue to get great guests on the podcast. And please tell all your writing friends about this podcast um, if if they don't know about it already as well, get them to subscribe
1: and of course, if you want to get in touch with us, you can always reach us by sending us an email uh, to podcast at uk, or you can reach us across every single social media platform going uh, by searching for at UK page one, unless you are on Mastodon in which case you need to go to bear with me here writing.exchange forward slash at pod. we're on every social media
0: platform. have you started the TikTok channel have you been doing dances (laughs) every week
1: I've been doing TikTok dances for years now Mark I've got zero (laughs) followers
0: I'm off to go and look at those videos right now but uh, otherwise have a great week and we'll speak to you next episode
1: see you later